Hey, I'm glad you're here today. If you have your Bible, would you open up to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black one in the pew rack in front of you, and I'd encourage you to open that up. If you're new with us, uh, I'll always give you the page number uh, for the passage that we're studying in those black Bibles, and you'll find it on page 782. Uh, in your pew Bible. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, excited we start a new sermon series today, and uh, uh, it's going to take us through Christmas. We'll break for Christmas for a couple of weeks from Daniel, and then uh, we'll finish up this study uh, a few weeks before Easter. It's going to be exciting. Uh, Many years ago, I was a college student, and me and three bros uh, took a long weekend trip down to South Padre Island, Texas. And as we rolled onto the island, we saw what at the time was said to be the second tallest land-based bungee jump on the planet. Uh, It was a crane that took you up 150 feet in the air and then threw you off with a rubber band attached to your ankles. And so, of course, we're like, oh, we've got to do this. And so we pull up to the bungee jump site, and from the ground, 150 feet up, I mean, it looked tall, but it wasn't like in the atmosphere tall. We're like, oh, this is awesome. And then there's this huge air mattress right underneath the place where you would bungee jump. It was taller than me. It was massive. I was like, oh, this is, this is fantastic. I'm, I'm going to do this. And so as a college student with, uh, I was totally broke with no disposable income. I totally put that on a credit card and then don't advise that. Uh, and I thought my friends were going to join me in this, but I learned too late into the process that they were not. And I was the only one who had signed up for this. And so immediately, the butterflies start to well up in my tummy. And uh, this dude is giving me all these instructions. Here's what it's going to be. Here's what you're going to do when we get up there. It's going to be really easy. And then the peer pressure, the bro courage, just, you know, makes, I'm faking like I'm excited about this. It's going to be great. And so they strap these things on my lower legs, and they buckle the, the bungee cord uh, to them, and they put me in this cage, and up we go. And from 150 feet in the air, I, I could see the whole island. I could see the ocean. I could see the bay on the other side. I could see the Pleiades. Uh, I, could, I could see a lot from 150. And then that giant air mattress looked like a Tide Pod laying on the ground. And I just thought to myself, what, what, have I, what am I doing here? But I could hear... Down below, the faint voices of my bros, you got this, Busby, yeah! And so I stand with my toes on the edge of the, uh, the cage, and I'm thinking I can't back out because my butterflies have now turned into condors. Uh, but if I back out, I'll never hear the end of it from the guys. And so then the beach dude up there with me is like, all right, bro, you ready? Three, two, one, bungee! And then I went head first. And I plummeted towards planet Earth. In that time, I thought to myself, what am I doing? I will never meet the little brown-headed girl that's going to be my wife forever. And we're never going to have four daughters together. And I'll never get to live in New England. And why, why have I made this choice? And about that time, that bungee cord bottomed out. And every internal organ tried to come out of my ears. And then it sprung me back up. I thought, I'm alive. It sprung me up. And then I started falling again. Oh, no. And I just, like the world's chubbiest yo-yo, just kept bouncing up and down until it was done. Uh, They lowered me into the air mattress. 
and I rolled off, no blood in my face, uh, still reeling from the terror of the moment. And the bros said, how was it? And I said, it was awesome! (laughs) That is exactly what it's like to study the book of Daniel. (laughs) Wondered where we were going, didn't you? But we got there. It is just like that. You stand before the book of Daniel, and you might think, oh, this is intimidating. There are parts of this that seem really scary and even confusing. And then think about this. We'll be studying a portion of this, some of the more intense portions of this, in an election year, and that just makes everything feel a whole lot more apocalyptic. And you might think, I I don't know if this is going to be for me. But when you get in it and you see the character of God on display, his tender love for his people, the course he has laid out for all of history that leads to his ultimate victory and the redemption of souls and his reign forever and ever, when you see that, you stand before the book of Daniel and you just think, this is incredible. Just a miracle of the book of the Bible that we have this story, these accounts, these visions to give us a way forward. I'm jazzed about the book of Daniel. For a number of years, it has fed me, and it's been a source that I've gone back to over and over again, almost surprisingly, to help me understand the presence of God in darkness, to understand what prayer is like and the value of prayer, to understand what it's like to name corporate sin in confession, and then to walk in steadiness while the kingdoms of the world crumble in chaos, knowing God has every bit of this. The book of Daniel is food for your soul, and God's going to do great things in us and through us as we study this book. Before we dive into Daniel chapter 1, I want to give you a bit of information that's going to help you from the outset understand what the book's about and where the book goes. So let me give you some quick information, some simple facts about the book of Daniel. First of all, it was written in the 6th century, around the year 520 B.C. is our best guess. There's a debate about the date as to when it was written. We'll get to that a little later in our study, uh, a few weeks down the road. Uh, Suffice to say, we are quite confident and comfortable with an early writing. This is the early writing of the book of Daniel. The dates covered in the book, it covers a span of roughly 70 years, from about 605 B.C. to 535 B.C. Uh, Another way of putting that is it starts in the first year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and it goes to the first year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia. Massive regime change. Uh, So that's the period of history that's covered in the action of the book. Now, when we get to some of these visions later on in the book, uh, that goes and covers all of human history, not just those 70 years, but 2019 and 20 and beyond as well. If we were to say what type of literature is this or what's the genre of this text, uh, the book has narrative in it, stories kind of like, say, the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is historical narrative. But it also has apocalyptic literature in it, like the book of Revelation. If we had to hang our hat on one of those, more often than not, uh, the people who write books tell us that Daniel belongs among apocalyptic literature. It is more like Revelation than it is Joshua. And it's nothing like the books that surround it. It's located in a section of Scripture known as the Major Prophets. Uh, But it's not like those other literatures. It's something different altogether. It's apocalyptic nature, I think, is what makes it a little intimidating for us in our study. 
And also, can I just tell you, um, some of the best sellers of heresy are people who write on apocalyptic literature, symbolism, and what it means. That stuff sells like hotcakes. It pays for private jets and giant mansions, and often it is disconnected from the truth of God's word altogether. So that's why this stuff can be a little intimidating at times. It has a simple structure. The book of Daniel has 12 chapters in it, and it's split in the middle, part one, part two. Part one, the first six chapters, are six different stories, six different narratives. Each chapter is a different story, and the main players in those stories are Daniel and his three friends. The second half of the book contains four visions. Over those six chapters, four visions are laid out that speak to God's work in earthly kingdoms and the eternal reign of God's forever kingdom. And so there you go, simple structure for the book of Daniel. Six stories, four visions, and that gives us what we need to know. Here's the historical setting for the book. Before we, if you just parachute into chapter 1, verse 1, you're going to be, uh, you're going to hurt a bit because you've got to understand some of the history behind how we get to this book. So once upon a time, probably back as far as Genesis chapter 12, God forms a covenant with his people. Uh, and covenants have very distinct characteristics. A covenant is not like just a common agreement or just some commitment to each other. Uh, it, Covenants have this. There's always two parties, a greater party and a lesser party. The greater party sets the conditions for the covenant. So a covenant is not made between peers or equals. It's made between one country, nation who is greater and one who is weaker. The greater country makes the conditions. It says this to the lesser country. If you will meet these conditions, do these things, then we will benefit you this way. We will bless you this way. If you break this agreement, here's how we will crush you. These are the consequences and the punishments that will come as a result. God has used covenants throughout history in order to establish and maintain his relationship with his people. And so if you were to go read uh, Leviticus chapter 26, start to finish, it lays out clearly God's covenant with his people. And that covenant gets repeated over and over again for the benefit of God's people to remind them This is what this relationship is supposed to look like. So God forms a covenant with his people. I will be your God. You'll be my people. Here's how you are to live your life. And when you live this way, here's how I will benefit you. I will bless you. I will protect you. I will flourish your nation. I will give you favor. I I will bless the world through you when you live this way. And if you want to know what are the conditions of the covenant, a nice simple summary of those are found in the 12 com- or the 10 commandments i'm new here thanks the 10 commandments uh so there's just one god he's it worship him cut out all idols be done with all that stuff don't take the lord's name in vain you go through the 10 commandments we've got a nice simple summary of god's covenant requirements for his people but if they break that covenant if they worship other gods if they turn from yahweh There are consequences. Leviticus 26 lays out clearly the consequences for breaking the covenant. God will bring judgment, and it will be severe. It will be significant. So what do you think Israel does? They break the covenant over and over and over again. Seldom do they live in covenant faithfulness with Yahweh. And what does God do? When they break the covenant... God brings judgment, a bit of punishment, but he always does it with a purpose in mind. That purpose is to turn his people back to him. He's not just throwing out punishment just because he's cranky and they've been naughty. He's 
punishing them with a purpose. It's justice with a goal in mind, and that goal is their repentance and their return. So if you were to spend some time with the book of Judges, you would see this cycle over and over again where God's people break the covenant, God punishes them normally by having an enemy nation come and take control. God's people bottom out, they turn in repentance to God, and then God rescues them from their oppressor, and they live for a period of time Uh, faithfully before the Lord. But all this sort of comes to a head. Israel just grows deeper and deeper in their brokenness before God. Eventually, the kingdom splits into two. The northern kingdom keeps the name of Israel. Southern kingdom takes the name of Judah. Judah is where we find the capital city of Jerusalem. In the year 722 B.C., Israel, after a string of 19 kings, none of whom walked with Yahweh, not one, the Assyrian army comes and destroys the northern kingdom of Israel as God's hand of judgment on his unfaithful people. About 125 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah had not fared much better than the northern kingdom of Israel. And finally, God's judgment comes upon them in the form of the nation of Babylon, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. He comes and lays siege to the city of Jerusalem, and uh, 598 B.C. takes control of that city and That brings us to the opening lines of the book of Daniel. We find Daniel, his three friends, God's people, in the wake of their destruction and their exile into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar didn't see fit just to destroy the capital city or to take captive the country, the area. He then takes the people and exports them back to Babylon. Exile was a really brutal practice. Essentially what you are doing by exiling exiling people from their home country to a different country is you are trying to vaporize them off the face of the planet because they will lose their language, their culture, their worship, their ethnicity. They will lose their national ties. They lose everything as they become absorbed into the conquering kingdom. It was a brutal and slow evaporation, and it was terribly effective. So this is where our story picks up in Daniel chapter 1. And from the very beginning, we're confronted with two things. One, we know this is a really hard time. That's an understatement. It it is so incredibly challenging and dark. But from the opening lines, we are met with the faithfulness of God. And I'll tell you this, you're going to have to look for it. But it's there. We have a God who is faithful to his people even while they are in exile. And so my goal this morning is to reassure you of the immovable faithfulness of God. And the outcome of our time in these first seven verses of Daniel may not necessarily be something you do, but at the very least it will be something you think, something you remember, that you will remember the faithfulness of God no matter the hardship, no matter the trial. If he's faithful to a people in exile, he's faithful to us today. And we've seen that play out over and over again throughout the story of God's people. So I want to show you in this passage three different facets of God's faithfulness as we begin our journey through the book of Daniel. Follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, 
and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. The word faithfulness doesn't show up in these first seven verses. But I'm telling you, the faithfulness of God is on clear display when we stop and pause and think about the God who is guiding his people here. So let me show you three facets of the faithfulness of God here in Daniel chapter 1. The first facet is this. God is faithful to keep his promises. When we ask the question, what is God's faithfulness like? First and foremost, he is a God who keeps his promises. He is true to his word. And this is played out in a negative way in the first two verses of the book. So thanks to our understanding of how covenants work and a little bit of Old Testament history, we understand the sad context of verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed Jehoiakim of Judah over to him along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Uh, And so there is a key line in verse 2. In the translation I've read this morning, it says this. It says, the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over. God handed him over. If you have a different translation of the Bible, it might say this. It might say, the Lord gave. How is Babylon able to conquer Judah? Not because they have a superior army, not because they have superior uh, leaders. It is because the Lord gave. What a loaded line filled with all kinds of covenant unfaithfulness, all kinds of grace from God, all kinds of startovers and redos, all kinds of promises and hopes, all kinds of sin upon sin upon sin. And after generation upon generation of brokenness and sinfulness, God gave the king and his people over to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. So in the opening lines of Daniel, we come face to face with a God who is not like the God of our imaginations. Our make-believe gods, even the ones that we might put Christian labels on, are gods who might be little more than just cosmic vending machines. We give them a dollar's worth of prayer and they spit out whatever the thing is that we want. That's our make-believe gods. Our our make-believe gods affirm us as we are in our brokenness and our sin. Our make-believe gods accept our explanations for our sinful actions and words. Our make-believe gods give us the benefit of the doubt because they know that we're actually really good people and we mean well. But the God of Daniel chapter 1 is nothing like this. He's not made up to suit our personal whims or the changing tides of culture. He is holy. And he hates idolatry. And he detests our sin. And he knows how deep our brokenness goes. He is the God who requires judgment of sin. When we think about the sin that 
breaks the covenant finally and ultimately before God. His people turn to other gods. Over and over again, they begin to worship the gods of the people around them. And that, wasn't, that didn't just mean like they went to a different church on Sunday. What that means is that they incorporated horrific practices, including human sacrifice. They leave the grace and the kindness of the God that brought them out of slavery in Egypt, brought them into a promised land, has delivered them from every enemy that's come their way, and they turn from him, and they just give themselves over to every sort of fleshly desire. It's a gross idolatry, as all idolatry is. And so the God of Daniel, chapter 1, is a God who will not abide that, who's not okay with that. Throughout the Bible, God makes it clear that our sin must be punished. And listen, God is faithful to keep his promise. His promise to punish sin is one that he never lets go. We tend to think of God's faithfulness in positive terms, and we should, but sometimes his faithfulness has a severity to it. But a severe faithfulness is still faithfulness. We just can't escape the reality of verse 2. If God judged the sins of Judah by handing them over to Babylon, how seriously do you think he will take our sin on this side of Easter? Now, your reaction might be to say, well, that sort of God seems mean and hateful. This is why I don't like the Old Testament God. This is why I only like the New Testament God. But if that's how we respond, it shows how much we truly do not understand God and do not understand our own sin. So God keeps his promises, and he has promised that sin's going to be punished. That's not a happy thing. That's not victory lap material. But it ought to bring us to our knees as we consider our sin and our need for rescue from it. So I think in light of this reality that God keeps his promises, especially promises of judgment, we ought to remember a couple of things. One, that God has purpose behind this punishment. Again, he's not punishing Judah just because he's cranky and they're naughty. He's using this judgment as a tool to bring his people back to him and ultimately to bring a glory to himself that's going to come in such a special and unique way. Second, we have some reason to be encouraged here. Look, if the Lord is so diligent over his threats of judgment, then surely his promises of grace and blessing will be attended to with the same precise care. Look, long before God gave Judah over in exile, over to Nebuchadnezzar, he gave them promises to carry with them into exile. Did you know that? This didn't just come out of thin air and just one day, whoop, bad guys are here and now we're out. God had been preparing his people through his prophets over and over again for many, many years for this very thing. And he gave them promises to carry with them into exile, promises that he would not leave them, that he would rescue them, that he would bring them home. In Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 through 16, God says this through the prophet. Zion, that's God's people, Zion says The Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. The prophet speaks as if from within the exile. What will God's people say when they have a Babylonian zip code? They might say this, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. And God replies, can a woman forget her nursing child 
or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. Look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. If God is so careful to pay attention to his promises of judgment, won't he also be attentive to his promises of blessing? He keeps his promises. There we find encouragement, and there we find an urgency to deal with our sin. God's faithful to his promises. Second facet of God's faithfulness is that God is faithful to suffer our humiliation. God's faithful to suffer our humiliation. Verse 2 is just loaded with all kinds of power. Uh, And it tells us the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. These holy vessels, what are they? They are uh, items used in worship and set aside and made for this very distinct purpose. You didn't go to the temple and say, hey, can I borrow that holy vessel to go back to my house and do something with? It, It stayed there. It was used only for that purpose. That's what made it holy, said it was set apart for this thing. Well, Nebuchadnezzar takes those implements used for worship, and he takes them back to the house of Marduk, and he props them up like trophies. It's hard to overstate uh, the embarrassment and the humiliation that would come upon God's people and God since Nebuchadnezzar has these vessels that were made for worship. The, the fate of a God and the fate of his people were tied together here in the ancient Near East. And so when the king, King Jehoiakim, is handed over to Nebuchadnezzar, and then the vessels of worship are handed over, and the people are handed over as well. It's saying Yahweh couldn't protect his people. The headline that would surround that, Yahweh is a failed God. His people are a loser. He's a loser. But God knew the humiliation he would have to endure in order to take his people into exile and bring them back in order to move redemption forward. He knew the humiliation he would have to bear, the shame that would come on him, and still he moved forward with it. But this is not the only time God has suffered shame for his people, right? Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 27. They crucified two criminals with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him uh, among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. God is well acquainted with humiliation. So how does it change us to consider the willful humiliation of God the Father in Daniel 1 and the willful humiliation of God the Son in Mark 15? Hey, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to recognize how incredible the love of God is for you. In Daniel chapter 1, he suffers with his people, but in Mark chapter 15, he suffers for his people. All of us carry guilt and shame from the things we've done wrong. If we want to identify ourselves in this story, we are not Daniel. 
We are those covenant breakers who brought this judgment on ourselves. We're not heroes who God would look at us and say, oh, you're the best. We are broken sinners in need of rescue, in need of salvation. And what are you going to do with your guilt and your shame? How will you handle that? Well, God has made a way for us. And that is Jesus Christ at the cross takes our guilt and shame on himself. The sinless Son of God took my punishment and he gives us new life through faith in him. You've got to understand that God will bear your humiliation in order for you to be exalted and saved, rescued from your sin. And Christian, look, if you are in a battle with sin and temptation, it might be helpful to remember the humiliation that sin cast on Jesus. I think our sin becomes increasingly distasteful when we recognize the punishment Jesus endured, the humiliation he endured for my sin. And so when my tempter comes calling to me, and I remember the horror of the cross and what Jesus endured in my place, there I find strength and motivation to flee that sin and to run to the cross once again. But his humiliation gives us more than just mental motivation. Jesus died and rose again, and that means through him we have actual victory over sin, and we have actual power over sin, and we have actual deliverance from sin. His death and resurrection destroys the enemy once and for all and gives us freedom and righteousness and a glory forever. He's taken our humiliation and in its place given us salvation. God's faithful to keep his promises, and he's faithful to suffer our humiliation. And the final facet of his faithfulness, God is faithful to chart our paths through suffering. We get to verses 3 through 7, and uh, it lays out for us the program used to incorporate Daniel and his friends into Babylonian culture. And to be sure, they have a unique assignment. Uh, The king, Nebuchadnezzar, has told his chief guy, Ashpenaz, I want you to find me some boys from royal family, noble lineage, boys without defect, boys who look good, they seem smart. All these, here's these outward criteria. And then we're going to train them for three years to serve Nebuchadnezzar. Now, from the outside looking in, someone might say, oh man, what lucky guys. Look at these boys. This is a place of honor. They get to serve the king and they're going to get to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine and live in the king's palace. And look at all these things that are given to them. A modern equivalent might be, oh, look, they're, they're like altar boys. And they get this high esteemed privilege to do this thing. But they are not altar boys. They are spoils of war. This assignment is not a reward. They are being stripped of their Hebrew identities. I want you to consider everything they've lost so far in the story. They've lost their homes. They've lost their families. They've lost their temple. They've lost their freedom. They've lost their language. They've lost their culture. They've lost even their very names. Their Hebrew names are taken away, and they are given these Babylonian names. They've lost everything, almost. You see, they still have God. Or rather, God still has them. Let me ask you this question. Who would you rather be in this story? The boys have nothing but God. Nebuchadnezzar has everything but God. 
Who you want to side with? Look, as readers, we have knowledge that the boys in the story do not. We know what's going to happen. We know that God's going to care for them. We know that he's going to protect them and give them favor. If you could speak encouragement to these characters, you could invade time and space from 2019 with all you know about all that's told us in Scripture, and you could go and speak encouragement to Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what sort of encouragement would you give to them? What would, knowing what you know about where all of this leads, what would you say to them? We might say something like, don't give up. God has you. God's with you. We know how the story ends. God wins and so do you. So cling to God. Don't doubt him. And I wonder if any of you would need to hear the same thing today. To have someone come to you and say, look, I know the story. Don't give up. God has you. God is with you. And we know how the story ends. God wins and so do you. So cling to God and don't doubt him. You got to take that word home with you today. If it's true for them, it's true for us as well. See, when we open the book of Daniel, we find a God who meets their people in their sorrow and leads them all the way through. He's charted a path for his people through every suffering all the way to glory. And it doesn't matter who the bondage keeper is. If it's Pharaoh in Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, or anyone else, God has his people and does not let go of them. And so Daniel challenges us to look at our hardships, our difficulties, through the lens of God's faithfulness and his goodness. We've talked about this before. I think it's a good reminder from time to time. Here's what so many people do. We make conclusions about God based on the situations we faced in life. This is the lens that we make conclusions about God about. So we would say, it hasn't been fair. Things haven't gone well for me. It hasn't been just. Uh, I've tried my hardest. Things haven't gone my way. Everything's good for everyone else but me. Therefore, God must be weak, unattentive, unkind, figment of people's imagination. This makes no sense. But the book of Daniel challenges us to reverse the order of these things so that we look at our hardships through the lens of God, who is faithful and mighty and loving and compassionate and with us. And when we see how great and huge and incredible our God is, all of a sudden these hardships just fade away and glory dictates the day. Because we have a God who's faithful and he charts away for us through all of our suffering. So in your difficult day, friend, you are not alone, not by any chance. You may not know how you're going to get through, but you don't have to. You don't have to know the way. You have to know the one. And if you've got the one, you've got the way. Look, if Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, you are never without hope. And I don't say that lightly because I know we have hard stories in this church. Diagnoses and hurting marriages and mental health issues and addiction and loved ones who are going through destruction and grief upon grief. And I want you to listen and believe the word of the Lord. God will never let you go. And he has charted your path through that hard day. And if the father was so careful to lead the son to the cross and out of the tomb, won't he also bring you through your hardship, through your darkness? Of course he will. So you can rest 
today, knowing that God is faithful to chart your path through the suffering. You may not leave here this morning with any more knowledge about your next step or what tomorrow holds, but you know the one. You know him, and you cling to him, and he holds you in all of your weakness and hardship. He's faithful. So we open the book of Daniel, and we're confronted with a God who is faithful in these many ways. And here's what we've seen this morning. God is faithful in his commitment to his promises and in his willingness to suffer for our salvation and in his direction for us through hardships. God is faithful. That's the headline. Now, to the casual reader, they might not see God's faithfulness in this passage. It is, in a way, hidden, but it's not secret In fact, so much of God's faithfulness can seem hidden to those who are hurting. But that's why on our hard days, when exile seems to have its way with us, we sit with the word of God open. And from the book of Daniel all the way to the book of Mark, we remember this everlasting truth. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He is a faithful God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, who is like you? Who is like you, the creator of all this? Who is like you, the God of compassion and love and mercy and grace? Who is like you, the God who will suffer in our place for our salvation? There's no one like you. And so, God, today we come with everything that we have, which is a load of junk, all kinds of sin and brokenness and fear and doubt. And in the face of these failures of ours, we say, God, we trust you. Jesus, we believe you. Holy Spirit, give us your strength and power as we press forward. Thank you for your presence in our lives and for your word to us through Daniel. And I pray for friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. They certainly have a religious background and they've got a powerful story that's brought them this far But the fact that they're here today to hear this message tells me that you have incredible plans for them. So Lord, soften her heart. Soften his heart that today they would turn to you in faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died in their place for their sin to save them forever and ever. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning uh, who are walking through all kinds of difficulty and who have all kinds of questions and doubts. Thank you for what you have shown us of your faithfulness today. Let that put iron in our legs, strength in our guts, that we would run with you even when the days are hard, knowing that you have us, you hold us, and you will never let us go. Thank you for that kind of promise. Thank you for being our faithful God. It's in Jesus' name we pray.